Well, I want to bring you greetings from Louisville, as we say there. Uh, I went to high school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it was very clear, like, if you were from Lancaster, you knew it was Lancaster. It wasn't Lancaster. Well, Louisville, similar. You, you have to kind of mumble it out, Louisville. And so greetings from Louisville and from so many of your brothers and sisters. Uh, some of them, I think, are even immediate family members for some of you uh, right there in Louisville at Sovereign Grace Louisville at Southern Seminary. Um, my church family, Clifton Baptist Church, they're gathered together right now. And uh, what a joy it is to know, isn't it, that on a morning like this, at an hour like this, that we are united uh, with our brothers and sisters in other parts of not just the country, but all over the world as we uh, worship the risen Christ and bear witness to his gospel. Um, I also say when I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I would routinely one summer make trips down to Silver Spring because I had a girlfriend who lived in Silver Spring, worked in D.C., and so I spent a lot of time going from Lancaster, Pennsylvania down into the D.C. area, and uh, it worked out well because she ended up marrying me. (laughs) So I know we're like a little out of that route here, or route, I don't know how we say, if we say route or route down in in this part of the country, but but I still feel like I need to go, I need to go take flowers or something to to see her, and maybe I should take flowers home, that'd be a good idea. All right, I think I've said enough. Go Eagles. I'll just, okay. All right. I had to do that. I had to just test the room and see now that you, yeah, okay. Uh, Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke 12. And as you're turning there, let me just say again, thank you for the invitation. What a privilege it is uh, to be with you and to see what God's doing here. I'm so grateful for uh, Larry and for Devin and the other elders and deacons even that I've met and just for you and your kindness to me. Uh, You are an evidence of God's grace and uh, a real encouragement. We'll be in Luke 12. So if you're, if you're there, you can say, I've got it. Okay, one of the things, by the way, I love, um, you know, the scripture talks about receiving the word with gladness. One of the things I love about preaching in Sovereign Grace churches is that you aren't shy about letting it be known that you're glad. Uh, so feel free to talk, to amen, and whatever else you want to do uh, insofar as it's orderly and honoring to Christ. We'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you a question before we jump into the passage. How much money does it take to be comfortable? That's the uh, adjective that's key. How much money does it take to be comfortable? That's the question that Charles Schwab asked Americans in a recent survey. This is what's called the Modern Wealth Index. You can go Google this later, but in the Modern Wealth Index that Charles Schwab conducts, uh, they asked a national sample of Americans that question. And the answer that Americans on average gave, how much money does it take to be comfortable, might surprise you. On average, Americans said that a net worth of $1.1 million was what was required to be, quote, financially comfortable. Now, if you're wondering, that, that number, that includes only about one out of every 10 Americans. 10% of the American population fits into the definition of financial comfort uh, that Americans identified. And then to be considered wealthy, so if comfort's here, well, to be considered wealthy, Americans in this, in, in this modern wealth index said uh, that you had to have a necessary net worth of $2.4 million dollars. I'll go ahead and tell you, I fall short of that standard of comfort. And perhaps you do too. As I said, just on that standard of comfort, $1.1 million, nine out of 10 Americans fall short of that 
standard of comfort. And of course, we recognize that's a subjective number. It's just what people feel. If I had that number, here's the, thing, the key thing for us. If I had that amount of wealth, then I'd be comfortable. What do we mean when we talk that way about comfort? I think what we mean is I would be free from worry. <laughs> I would be free from this sense of financial vulnerability. The, the fear that it could all fall apart at any given moment. The fear that I don't, this anxiety about uncertainty that might come. If I had this amount, whatever that amount is, then I would feel protected, safe, sure, comfortable. And our ex comfort and the good life are often disconnected from what God says, aren't they? And Jesus, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, has something to say about all of this, not just in the abstract, but he has something for you and for me this morning. And let me give you the context. Uh, here, Jesus is shifting his focus. He has just finished teaching the crowds. And he's told a parable, in fact, a parable about a rich fool who builds up barns so that he can hoard his treasure. And now he turns his attention away from the crowds and he speaks to his disciples. The, the frame and the picture, so to speak, tightens in. If you like film, you know that, that kind of director's technique, right? You've got this broad frame, and then as if to get your attention focused, the frame comes in, and it focuses in on a more tight sh camera shot. And now you know who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking, if you're a Christian here this morning, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. And he will speak to them not in parables, but plainly. So let's see if we have ears to hear what he says. Listen to the word of God, starting in Luke 12, beginning in verse 22. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small, as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you're, to what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to work through your word as you promise he always does to test us 
to confront us with our own idols, our own fears, our worries, our doubts, and to draw us again to faith, to trusting in your good care. Lord, help me to tell the truth. Help us all to have ears to listen, hearts to receive it, wills to obey it. Thank you for the privilege of preaching your word one more time. And I'll be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The text breaks down pretty easily, so we're going to spend most of our time in verses 22 through 31, and the big idea is this, don't worry. Don't worry. Easier said than done, right? Don't worry. Remember, Jesus has just told a story, a parable. If maybe you're not familiar with a lot of the Bible, when we talk about parables, we're just talking about stories that Jesus told to to teach a truth, a principle. And he's told a story in the preceding verses about the foolishness of holding on to wealth, of hoarding it, right? Laying it up in these barns that are never big enough. And, and, and he tells the story of this fool who in the middle of the night, he's, his life is taken away, right? What, what was it all for? He was a fool. And the failure of this fictional man is that he kept building bigger and bigger barns for his wealth. But as Jesus says, he was not rich toward God. That's the expression Jesus uses. He wasn't rich toward God. So the implication, as he's now going into this direct teaching with his followers, is what does it look like for you to be rich toward God? If the fool was a fool because he wasn't rich toward God, then what does it look for his people, Christ's people, to be wise, generous toward God? Well, we can ask the question, what gets in the way of that kind of generosity? What is it this morning in my heart and in your heart that is like an obstacle that impedes that kind of wise generosity toward God? I think the answer is obvious from the passage, right? It is fear. It is anxiety. It is worry. Here's how our inner monologue goes, if you're anything like me, I think. If I live this way and I live with a loose hold on my possessions... How can I be safe? If I live generously toward God, how can I actually retain control of my security? Because everything in me says, if I want to be safe, if I want to have security, then I have to cling to it. I have to hold on to my wealth, hold on to my possessions. And Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. He lovingly speaks to his disciples and he gives us this simple command, don't worry, do not be anxious. It's a command, right? It's an imperative. I hope you heard that. And it is comprehensive. It's about food, life, clothing, the basics. So let me give you just a few reasons that this text suggests why, right? If Jesus says why we shouldn't, or he says we shouldn't worry, he also tells us why we shouldn't. And his grace and his mercy, he doesn't just say, don't worry, got it, let's move along. He says, no, 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 I'm going to tenderly, graciously, mercifully explain to you the reasons why you shouldn't be fearful. And here they are. Why shouldn't we worry? First, verse 23, look what he says, because there is more to life than these things. There's more to life than these things. These are good things, aren't they? Food, clothing, even money. Like the Lord, the Lord entrusts these things. These are good gifts, but they are just things. They are not the reason for living. I love the way Phil Riken puts this. He says, they are means to the higher end of living for God. They're just means, but they're good things. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
I don't know, for whatever reason you're here and a friend brought you, a family member brought you, your problem isn't that your dreams or your hopes or the things you're living for are far too grand. Christianity is not calling on you, Jesus is not calling on you to settle for something less. The gospel comes in and says, no, you have settled for far too little. You're putting your hope in material wealth, your identity in financial prosperity, thinking that'll give you joy or control or security. But Jesus is saying, you have no idea what you're missing out on. They're just things. There's more to life than these. That's the reason why we buy into the lie that life consists of these things, material wealth and comfort. And if we buy into that, we'll never be satisfied. And you can't really go much further in the text if you don't deal with this fundamental reality. You're looking. Why is, why is that a problem? You are looking. I am looking. When we fall into this trap, we're looking for things to do for us, to be for us, what God himself can only do or be. We've made them idols is how the Bible talks about it. And they will never be enough because they weren't designed to be enough. Notice again, Jesus doesn't say they're unnecessary, doesn't say they're wrong. He assumes he is the God-man after all. He was fully man. He understands that we need these things, but they're just things. Secondly, why shouldn't we worry? Look at verse 24. It's because God cares for his children. Look at verse 24. Uh, there's the language of caring. I'll get into the, the illustrations that he uses here in just a minute. And then you could also look at verses 27 and 20, through 29 for more of this when he t uses the illustrations of the flowers. But God cares for his children. How can we be assured that God cares for us? Because you might hear the first part and say, okay, there's more to life than things. And you might even buy into the big idea that God cares for his children. But Jesus, again, in his mercy, he says, I'm not gonna just give you kind of a theological statement. I'm gonna give you some examples just to get to your heart because I know your heart is hard and you're actually kind of stiff-necked and, and hard-hearted. So I'm going to give you some really like, I'm going to bring the cookies way down on the bottom shelf, Jesus says, and I'm going to give you some really accessible examples. And if you don't see this, then, then we're going to have to go even lower, I guess. Okay, look at what he does. Ravens and lilies, not Baltimore ravens. These are, these are not noble creatures. There is very little attractive or enticing about ravens. Ravens, in fact, contrary to what, uh, what Poe may have said, the, uh, ravens are like crows on steroids. Okay, and they're terrifying to me. We have these things in Kentucky, they call them turkey buzzards. I don't know who thought, but they're, uh, they're like ravens in this. Just ugly creatures. They're big and they're nasty. They're like rats with wings. Have I made my point? Okay. And even more significant than my personal prejudice against ravens, the Old Testament had designated them as unclean animals, right? So they're not just gross. They're ceremony. If, again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, what this means is they're ceremonially unclean. And the law that God gave to his people, to Israel in the Old Testament, these, there were a whole categories of animals that were said to be unclean, right? You're not to eat them. You're not to touch them. You know, you, you stay away. Right, because the, the point was, you are God's chosen people. You're set apart. You're going to look and live differently than the nations around you. And ravens were part of this, this ceremonial uncleanness. So they're not just gross or weird. They're 
unclean. But Jesus, by making this illustration, what's he saying? God even cares for them. These disgusting, unclean birds. They do no work. No work. Ravens are scavengers. They, they, they contribute nothing. <laughs> they, they just go around feeding on carcasses and on other things that we don't even want to think about because you want to eat lunch after this. And yet, he says, God feeds them. Here's the point, Christian. If God cares for these ugly creatures that do no labor, how much more will he care for you? His son or his daughter? The point, by the way, is not that you should imitate the ravens, right? Become a loafer. Like, I'm not going to do any work. Uh, no, no, the, the scriptures consistently commend to us the necessity of labor and the godliness of work, right? That Christians are to work. That's not the point. But the point is to say, if God cares for them, he'll care for you. You can count on it. But look at the other illustration he gives. The lilies in verses 27 and 28. It's another illustration, another lesson in how God cares for us, his people. And the language here, by the way, that, that verb observe or consider in verse 27 it's it's intended to communicate this kind of like just take a glance you don't have to study them i mean we, th- we might, you might think he's saying like do a, a really fierce you know analytical empirical study of the lilies that's not actually the language in the, the word the, the the meaning in the original greek it's more of a consider almost like as you're driving by glance out the window and look at them like you don't have to and the, and the point being you don't have to work that hard to con- to, to to learn this lesson it's pretty obvious. Consider the lilies. The original language says these are probably just wildflowers in the Palestinian countryside there that were just sprouting up next to wherever Jesus was standing at any given moment. They're so visible. But they teach the same lesson as the ravens. They have no ability to provide for themselves, do they? The flowers have nothing. They can't do anything for themselves. But God gives them all they need to fulfill their design and purpose. He gives them rain on a morning like this, sunshine, minerals, and nutrients from the soil. Everything that they need is provided for them. And as they do, as God does that, their beauty is such, Jesus says, in an astonishing statement theologically, that their beauty exceeds even the splendor of Solomon. And if you're wondering, what's that all about? Well, this is the son of David, the the quintessential king whose wealth was so massive that no one could count it. And Jesus says, yeah, that's what's going on. Whatever, whatever stuff you thought Solomon had, whatever wealth, whatever gold, whatever power you thought Solomon had, it's just stuff. These lilies, their splendor bears even more witness and testimony to the glory and the power of the Creator who cares for them. And you don't have eyes to see it, and often I don't have eyes to see it because we want to look at the material stuff and think that's the sign of God's blessing and His provision. It's a remarkable insinuation. In some ways, Jesus is saying these flowers might be better examples for you and for me than monarchs. And Jesus ties it to faith. If God is mindful of the flowers, mindful of this vegetation that comes and it goes, right? It grows up and then you throw it in the fire as fuel. He says, oh, you have little faith in verse 28. If God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, oh, you of little faith? 
And the insinuation is this, right? If you take God at His word, if you have faith, if you trust His promise, you will be freed from this kind of worry. We need to hear that, don't we? I need to hear that. What else, though? He doesn't stop there. Why else shouldn't we worry? Third reason, because it's useless and absurd. (laughs) So if Jesus didn't get you in kind of the tenderness of, look at the birds, look at the flowers, he also, in verses 25 and 26, kind of in between the sandwich of these two illustrations, right there in the middle in verses 25 and 26, he makes another argument, an observation on the absurdity of anxiety. If God promises to provide for his children, then it is unnecessary and even, we could say, insane for us to worry. We gain nothing by it. Look at what he says. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? This is, how, when was the last time that your fear slowed down the sun's, uh, the solar system's basically astronomical structures? Like, when was the last time that by fear you were able to slow the Earth's orbit around the sun and add a few days to your life? You can't do it. It's, let's just say it, foolish, idiotic, insane. We gain nothing by it. Just think about this for a minute. When you and I worry, worry itself never gives. Worry never gives, it only steals. Worry never gives you anything, it only steals from you. It adds nothing, it merely subtracts. Worry robs you of time, it robs you of rest, it robs you of joy, it robs you of health, of godliness, of hope. I mean, you could just go on and on. It adds nothing, it only subtracts. Fourth, why else shouldn't we worry? Now it twists a little, it turns a little. Because we seek the kingdom. We seek the kingdom. Look at verses 29 through 31 for this. The lesson is so clear, but so important, Jesus has to restate it in verse 29. In other words, if God feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers, then his disciples should not seek after what you're to eat or to drink, nor be worried. And if we're not going to be worried, then what? I mean, it'd be one thing if Jesus said, don't worry, okay, we, we got it, done, let's move on. But no, Jesus, again, you need to hear his tender mercy here as the good teacher. He says, I'm not just going to tell you what not to do. I'm going to replace it and give you a positive command with what you are to do. What are you to do? Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried for all the nations seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, what? Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you positive command. So the question comes to you and to me this way. What are you living for? What are you living for? Jesus says that the Gentiles, that's the term sometimes translated that way, the nations of the world. This is to say those who don't know God, unbelievers. The nations of the world, those who don't know God, they live lives that testify, they bear witness in their lives to their separation from God. Right? The, the, the way they live, the things they pursue, it shows, it demonstrates that they aren't living for, for God and for his kingdom. They seek after that is to say they place these things, these material things as the driving ambition of their lives. And therefore these objects and the anxiety that they bring and the worry that they produce rule, really rule and govern the lives of unbelievers. 
And if you think for a minute, if you've been a Christian for a while, think about maybe some of you were converted in adulthood or maybe not, maybe even as teenagers. I don't, I don't know all your stories. Think about just for a minute. You, this is part of your story, isn't it? Think about before you knew Christ, how much of your heart was just on a chain being tugged by things. The next paycheck, the next promotion, the next home, the next vacation, the next retirement contribution, whatever it was. Think your heart was on a chain and it was being tugged by these things. And there was fear and anxiety and worry because somewhere along the way you thought, what if it's not enough? What if it gets taken away? Jesus says, my people live a different way. They seek the kingdom of God. What does that mean, right? This clearly is critical. If seeking the kingdom is the positive command, the antidote to seeking after these things, what what does that mean? We need to understand this. Well, this has to do also with what Jesus has said previously in chapter 9 when he says, you want to follow me? You can do that, but you need to count the cost. There's, again, economic language, isn't there? Do you remember in chapter 9 when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, but in following him to count the cost? What was the cost? It is picking up a cross and following him. If if, if chapter 12 isn't dramatic enough, chapter 9 already kind of had everyone's jaw on the floor. You want to follow me, Jesus says, the way you do it is by picking up an instrument of execution. Dying to yourself. You will live in me as you die to yourself. What does that mean? It means when you follow after Christ, when you live and you seek his kingdom, when you die to yourself and you live for him, it will disrupt your life. It will recalibrate your priorities. How you think about your career, for example, and opportunities for advancement in it. How you think about meaning and the purpose of retirement. I don't want to step on toes here. Parents, how you think about the dreams and hopes you have for your children. The way you define what flourishing looks like for your kids. The way you define what flourishing looks like for you in retirement. The way you think again about your career, about advancement. If if you seek the kingdom, all of those questions get recalibrated. For example, what if your next career move was motivated not by the number of dollars on the end of the salary, but by how God might use you in that place to be a blessing to a local church to pursue and advance the kingdom. And the salary was just the salary, but not the determining factor. What if, and as you think about retirement, what if, what if that started to look a little different as you seek the kingdom and all these things will be added to you? We're material beings. We have material needs. We pray for bread as we're commanded to do by Jesus. We work to eat. We build businesses. We create jobs. We seek to love our neighbors well, but our chief aim and our first desire must be the kingdom of God. All other aims, all other intentions and dreams must be subordinated to Jesus' kingdom. Yes. And here's the danger. You can hear, it's easy for us to hear that and go, oh, yeah, great, sign me up. Here's the danger. If we get that upside down, what happens? We will use God as a tool to establish our own kingdom. What do I mean by that? I will seek first the kingdom of Matt and try to figure out how to get Jesus to get on board with my kingdom and to give me what I need. And there's a lot of counterfeit Christianity that does just that. It presents itself as being about the kingdom of Christ, but it is fundamentally about the kingdom of me and how can I get God to get on board with my agenda. 
And I can say that because it's in every one of our hearts, that inclination. It's in mine and it's in yours this morning. But there's hope. That's the big command. Don't worry. But then what about verses 32 and 34? This is, again, the this, this seeking the kingdom is the hinge here. Because the second big command is to invest wisely. Big idea, don't worry. Second big idea, invest wisely. So in seeking the kingdom is kind of Jesus starts to turn away from don't do this, don't do this, don't worry, don't fear, don't have, don't have anxiety. And now he says, and here's how you're going to fight it. Here's how I'm going to, in my grace, here's how I'm going to teach you how to lean in against it. Look at the reassuring command. Fear not. Essentially echoing what he's already said. Fear not. But then look at the tender language. Little flock. Little flock. It's so reassuring. He is aware, Jesus is aware of his disciples' temptation to look at themselves, to feel weak, to feel vulnerable. If you ever, I, I did not grow up on a farm, believe it or not, even though I went to high school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But, but if, you, if you've seen a little flock, right, just a few sheep, I mean, they're vulnerable. You know, they're, 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 they're exposed to predators and, and it looks like at any given minute somebody could come and just scatter them. And they're aware of it. Jesus says, I know, I know how you feel. I know I've called you to pick up your cross and follow me. And, and as you're looking at me, I'm basically homeless. I have no place to lay my head. I mean, things don't look good right now materially. <laughs> I know you feel vulnerable. I know you feel exposed, insecure. I know, you, but let me tell you, you'd have no reason to fear. Why? Look at what he says. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek the kingdom, command, but don't, don't, don't be afraid. Why? Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The thing you're commanded to seek, guess what? Jesus says, spoiler alert. I'm going to let you in on a secret. The Father is pleased to give it to you. He doesn't just say the Father is going to give it to you. He tells you something about the Father's heart towards his children. He finds pleasure in giving you the kingdom. Consider that for a minute. You're commanded to seek this and then immediately assure that, he, that the Father gives it. And if you don't fundamentally trust that God is who He says He is, that His disposition towards His children is one of lavish generosity, of mercy, you're going to have a hard time believing that He really delights in giving you and me the kingdom. If you don't trust His heart, you'll never trust His hand. What's that look like? How do we do it? Okay, here's what Jesus says. There are a couple things. But the big idea is this. We have to invest wisely. There are things, two things. Two, things we need to give away and things we need to gain is what Jesus says. First, things we need to give away. This is part of your investment. Look at verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Like, oh, Jesus, why'd you have to do that? <laughs> Let's think about this together. Jesus is not calling all of his disciples to take vows of poverty. He's not calling us to monastic asceticism, necessarily. This is what we could call mild hyperbole. Right? But there are times where Jesus does confront the rich young ruler. Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. But he doesn't do that with everyone that he encounters, right? We know this is not, not a universal general statement of kind of vows of poverty for all Christians at all places because at times Jesus routinely enters into the homes of those who were wealthy and he receives their hospitality. He seems quite comfortable to do that. 
And it's clear from the early church. You're going to study early uh, church history. It's clear from the early church. You can even read about this in Acts, that there were many in the early church who owned possessions and had varying degrees of wealth. But what the Bible makes clear is that wealth can be used for the glory of God. But with all those caveats and disclaimers and context, it's worth then going back to the command and saying that Jesus is still a little shocking here. He cuts right to the heart and he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. I want to just suggest a few things to you as we let, let the word do its work in us before we kind of rush along with our kind of stiff arms. Like, okay, because if you're like me, you feel that. Like, okay, so there's some outs. There's some loopholes here. Okay, so I can move on. I can, I can Heisman that thing. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's in Maryland you haven't had a Heisman Award winner in a while. So <laughs> anyway, okay. Think about Jesus' hearers in this context. There were some who would have been wealthy, but the majority of Jesus' hearers, his disciples, likely were not wealthy. So we need to let this land on us a little bit. The command is universal, and it is for you and it's for me this morning. Every Christian, no matter your tax bracket, is given this investment strategy. You need to divest. This is a command to cut yourself loose from the ties that material possessions might have on your heart, on your loves. If you see it, if you see these, these things, this material wealth kind of knitting cords to your heart, Jesus is saying you've got to cut that off. And the way you cut it off is by giving it away. Maybe you need a living example. Luke gives us an example in chapter 18. And you may know the story. I alluded to it already. A young man comes to Jesus. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To enter into the kingdom, right? On the surface, the young man looks like he has it all together. Has the right pedigree, the right resume, the right portfolio. He's wealthy and he appears to be a moral person. By his own testimony, he says that he has fulfilled the basic outlines of the law in the Old Testament and he has done so consistently in his argument is from his youth. And Jesus looks at him in a moment similar to this and he says, there's one thing missing. Sell everything you own and give it to the poor. This is actually how he says it in Luke 18, 22. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. It's, it's echoing exactly what we're reading about here in chapter 12. And Luke tells us that when this young man hears this, come, I mean, you have to remember, this is not like some like, fictional account. This is a voice that comes out of lungs, air comes out of lungs through vocal cords. He hears Jesus himself speak words. And how does he respond? He hears the, the Christ speak to him. Telling him, how, here is how you can have access to my kingdom. Here's how you have eternal life. And what does he do? Says, Luke says that he became very sad. Sadness. Why? For he was rich. The thing that he thought, the thing that you think, the thing that I think is going to make me happy, material wealth and riches, actually becomes the obstacle in the way of his joy. On account of his idolatry, he's unable to enter into Christ's joy. And he has no inheritance in the kingdom. In fact, the, the Luke is insinuating he looks rich, but he's actually poor. 
He has no claim to the inheritance of Christ and his kingdom. So how do you and I avoid that kind of poverty, eternal poverty, the kind of poverty that comes from having a heart captured by this appetite for material wealth, which is in every one of us? And we go back again here to the text. Give away. Give it away generously to those who are in need. That's the formula. Here's the principle. You will never regret following this command. You'll never regret it. Anything in this life that you give away, you'll never later wish you had held on to it. There will never come a time in, the, in eternity or in the new heavens and the new earth when you're in the presence of God where you'll look back and go, you know what, I wish I'd, I'd, I'd protected my, my uh, savings account a little bit more. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I had held on to that portfolio. You know, I really should have bought in on the, on the Bitcoin thing on the way up. You're not going to worry about it. No, you'll never regret it. And even in this life, have you noticed this in your Christian life, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while? Even when it's sacrificial, even when you know it's a squeeze on the budget, have you ever regretted being generous after the gift? We get so worked up about it before the gift. I don't know. Feels like a big sacrifice. I don't know how much money is going to be there at the end of the month. Can we really afford to give this gift, to give that, show that kindness, to do this thing? And then after we've done it, we never look back, oh my goodness, I should never have done that. I should never have been generous. That's not the way generosity works. Generosity, too, by the way, requires intentionality and planning, doesn't it? Because our hearts are wired this way, they, we don't fall into it by just inertia. <laughs> we, I think we sometimes, even as Christians, it'll just kind of birth itself out of me. Natural. No, you have to be intentional about it. You have to break through those hard hearts of ours. And if you don't, you'll be seduced. You'll be lured in by the world. So you've got to, I have to continually be cutting those cords that attach themselves to my heart. And disciplined, intentional generosity is in God's design. It is the gift he's given us to do that work in our hearts. It's sacrificial. It pushes us, when it's sacrificial giving, right? It pushes us toward this truth, to entrust ourselves to God. Because we're reminding ourselves, I actually am not the one who's able to provide fully for myself. I never have been. I've just, I've believed this illusion, this myth that I'm providing for my own security. But Lord, no matter what's in my bank account, at the end of the day, the only hope, the only security, the only comfort I have is because you're holding me up. We are to freely give. Here's how you're going to read church, uh, early church history. Cyril of Alexandria puts it this way. Um, ancient church father says, give away these earthly things and win that which is in heaven. Give that which you must leave, even against your will, that you may not lose things later. Lend your wealth to God that you may be really rich. Lend your wealth to God that you may be really rich. When we freely give of our possessions to help those who are in need, our lives bear witness that we have treasure in heaven. The one who has pledged to feed and care for his sheep. And lastly, what's the other part of the investment strategy? There are things you need to gain. There are things you need to give away. There's a divestment plan. And there's also, there are also things you need to gain. He doesn't just command his disciples to give away their possessions. He commands them, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. If your dreams are limited to this life, He's saying you'll be left with nothing in the life to come. Here's the amazing thing. The way to gain eternal treasure is by giving away earthly treasure. 
That's the, that's the formula. When you give generously to the needy, you are forming for yourself a purse. Sorry, guys, if you don't like that language, but Jesus is using it here. Okay, that's what money bags are. It's a purse, basically some kind of man purse, I guess. But what does he mean? He's saying you, you form for yourself an ability to collect and to hold a far more enduring and eternal prize. You're making for yourself a bag that can bear the weight of this thing that you're living for, a treasure that will never fail you, that will never be destroyed. There's no moth that can get to it and eat it up. So what's the connection between your heart and your behavior here? Our loves drive our actions, right? What you love, what you live for, what you think is beautiful and worthwhile, that's, what's, that's what you're following after. But Jesus understands us. And so he doesn't just say, well, change your heart. Figure out a way to retune your heart. You got some broken loves in there, so figure out some way. Go on a spiritual retreat and do that. Nothing against spiritual retreats. But Jesus gives us a practical command. The way you're going to rewire your heart through the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit is by giving. That's how you start rewiring and retuning the loves that are in your heart that are right now out of tune. So do you pray that the Lord would give you a heart that gives joyfully and that prizes God himself above all else? Let me suggest to you practically, whether you feel it or not, quote unquote, that doesn't have anything to do with initiating the behavior of generous giving. We sometimes think, I think it's a very American way of thinking, well, if my heart's not fully in it, then maybe I shouldn't give it. Don't buy into that. <laughs> One of the ways God might change your heart and your joy in giving is by, through the disciplined behavior of giving. Your, your heart sometimes has to catch up to your behavior. Why is this hard? It's because it goes to the heart. It has to do with our, our trust in our Heavenly Father. Fear tells me that God will fail to deliver. Fear tells me that I have to look to myself for my own security. Fear robs me of, my, of the joy of generous giving. And Jesus strikes at the heart of all that right there at the end in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's a connection between your heart and your treasure, the things you think are worth living for, the things you love. So you can choose. You can have your treasure in this life or in the life to come, but you can't have both is what he's saying. You can either live for the things of this life, they're just things, or you can live for the kingdom to come. Well, as we finish this up, one of the scariest scenarios in the Bible is when God hands you over and gives you everything that you want. You might think, that sounds like a dream. But throughout the, t throughout the scriptures, one of the scariest signs of God's judgment is where he says, you want to live after the, for this? You want to pursue after this? this? Is everything that you want? Fine, I'm going to give you over to it. I'm going to give you everything that you think you want. And that's actually what we read, what, what, that, that parable that Jesus told of the, the rich fool. So what about us? What's the sign of his love? It's hearts transformed by the power of the gospel that get retuned. Paul bears witness to this in Philippians 4. Just listen to his testimony. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That actually isn't about how much you can bench press. 
Philippians 4.13. It's about, I have learned through the power of God by his Holy Spirit, whatever my circumstances, whether I have much or little, I have treasure in God and I'm freed from worry. I have a friend who um, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma years ago and he, he's now with the Lord. And in the final uh, days of his life, uh, we were coming in as elders and visiting with him, praying over him, anointing him with oil, things you know that the scriptures command us to do, and, and hoping and praying that the Lord would heal him. And uh, I walked into his hospital room one day, and he had a laptop up, and his body was just devastated through the treatments. I mean, the, the treatments, if the disease wasn't going to kill him, the treatments were. And some of you have walked through loved ones who've battled cancer and, and know that. And he just an excru- was in excruciating pain. And he had his laptop open, and on it was just uh, an image of a bird. And I'm like, okay, like, did the, did the, uh, what's going on, you know? And uh, he just said, he kept saying to himself, remember the birds, remember the birds. And it was like our, in the middle of suffering, and you have to, you know how this works. He had a wife, children, What's going to happen to them? Should I be fearful? Should I be worried? Should I be anxious? And he needed, and you and I need, reminders to put in front of our physical eyes sometimes to say, remember the birds of the air. If your heavenly Father feeds them, if he cares for them, how much more, Grace Church, will he care and feed you? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Thank you that your son has come, your kingdom has come, and yet we await its final coming in its fullness. And as we live between those times, Lord, we confess our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Oh, we feel it this morning. There are so many things that would attach themselves to our hearts, false treasures, lesser treasures. And there are those of us here in this room this morning who feel the weight of uncertainty, the the weight of fear. Our bank accounts feel low at the end of the month. We're not sure where our jobs are going or if we'll find a job. There, There are real concerns. So Lord, we pray that by your word and through your spirit this morning, you would comfort us. Oh, free us from fear. By your spirit, deepen our faith. Cause us to look afresh to the cross because if you have not withheld your own son, will you not freely give us all things? We trust you and we confess together that Jesus is enough for all these things. We pray this in his name, amen.